Why am I choosing to write about this multi-front assault on our society, culture, families, and very way of life? Because I see it, I know where it is headed, and I refuse to choose to accept it. The 10 working principles for a healthy society. How to push back against the social media platforms. How to get your family strong again. You can get it anywhere books are sold on February 27th. Charles Barkley, your listed as one of the 50 greatest players to ever play the game in history. 23,000 points, 12,000 rebounds, 4,000 assists. I mean, there are taller players, there are faster players, there are more physically gifted players, but yet you're in the top five to ever play the game. How did you make that happen? Well, number one, I, I didn't like being poor. I wasn't going to get a degree in engineering or anything like that. But see, one reason I love sports, uh, it could change your life. Uh, it changed my life. Yeah. You know, I grew up in the project with a single mom, and I didn't know, but basketball saved me. It got me out of that environment. So once I started having success, you know, you buy your mom a house, you buy your grandmother a house, and you're like, man, but you have to keep working your behind off. But I love sports because it just changed the entire dynamic of my life. I wasn't just some kid in the country, uh, grew up poor, and that was my life. And it's only because of that ball. Uh, and once you started having success, like when I went to high school, I'm like, okay, now I got to get to college. Because I, I, at, this, at this time, I'm not thinking I'm going to play in the NBA. Let's be realistic. I'm thinking like, okay, I'm going to go to college for free. And then when I got to the NBA, and I'm like, ooh, these guys are going to pay me to play basketball. And I'm like, I'm staying here as long as I can. I mean, I'm like, hey, this is a, this is a, and it's a great living. Sports are a great living. I mean, football's dangerous, but it's still a great living because you got guys who, like I say, what would they be doing? Because people always ask me this question. I always say, I'm not going to give you no bogus answer. I have no idea what I would be doing if it wasn't for basketball. I'm not going to sit here and act like I was a great student. Um, but basketball means a lot to me because it changed the dynamic of my, of my yeah. life. And I tell these kids all the time. Not just going pro. The reason I, I stress so much education, because you know you got. I mean, you get a chance to do what you want to do if you get that free education. You got so many people walking around here who are in debt and gonna be in debt for a long time. To get a college scholarship to me, uh, it's a system perfect, not even close to perfect. But to go to college for free, I think it's a really big deal. Yeah, because you're not debt loaded when you come out. Yes. I I would not have gone to college if I wasn't on a full-ride scholarship. Yeah. I went on a football scholarship, and I got hurt and all, but, I mean, I didn't get killed, and it put me in college. Yes. And otherwise, I guarantee you I wouldn't have gone. So I did go, and then I went on and got graduate school mm -hmm. and then went on and got a doctor's degree, and here I am today. But I wouldn't have done it without sports. But, but that's the thing I tell these young kids. I said, first of all, I wish every kid could play pro sports. It's the greatest living ever. It's awesome. Yeah. But it's unrealistic. Less than 1% of all players are going to go on to the NBA, the NFL, or Major League yeah. Baseball. And that's why I tell them, man, please take advantage of that free education. Single mother, you're in the projects. Your role models, the people you looked up to, were not no. the greatest role models. I mean, but, come on, they're criminals. But, but I played basketball very angry 
in the beginning. Yeah. I was angry at my dad. I was angry at Miss Gomez. Miss Gomez was my Spanish teacher, and I flunked Spanish. I did. I flunked Spanish. First of all, I'm trying to figure out, even to this day, 50-some years later, why was I taking Spanish in, in <laughs> Alabama? I tell myself that all the time. I joke. So I flunked Spanish, and I didn't get to graduate. And I stood next door at the baseball stadium on the top rung by myself. And I watched the entire graduation, and I cried unmercifully for like an hour. We only had like a little over 100 people graduate. Right. And I was so distraught. And every time I touched the basketball court, I was mad at my dad for not being there. And my dad actually flew across the country to see me graduate. He was not really in my life, but he flew from California to Alabama to see me graduate. And I flunked my Spanish exam. And I didn't grade. He was furious. And I like. So you I, didn't get to walk the stage. I did not get to walk. But I stood there for two hours, like an hour and a half, and just watched everybody graduate. And I cried the whole time. And then I made in my mind that night, I'm going to get all these people back. It wasn't until I got older and realized, you know what? Okay, so so actually what happened, remember that the incident I had where I spit in New Jersey? Right. You did not spit on an eight-year-old no, girl on purpose. I that, did not. She was not your target. She was not. Well, nobody was my target. It was just stupidity on my part. But that night, first of all, I got suspended, which I should have got suspended. But I was sitting in a hotel that night, and I said, man, you got to calm down. Because if you play on the edge, it's just a matter of when you're going to go over the edge. Yeah. And I sit down. I said, you know what? I forgive my dad. He wasn't there. We grew up poor. It sucked. But I got to play basketball for me. Uh, then secondly, I said, you know what? It's actually my fault I flunked Spanish. It's really not Mrs. Gomez's fault. I flunked the exam. And from that point on, my whole basketball life changed. I said, I just want to be a great player and have success for myself. But going through high school, not when I in college, I was trying to prove, I was trying to stick it to everybody. I wasn't mature enough to realize the stuff that happened in my life was my fault. And after the spin incident in New Jersey, I had to sit in that hotel room and say, man, what is wrong with you? Uh, and that to me, that actually was the turning point in my career. Really? It was because I was like, you can't play basketball angry. You play to be successful and you play for the love. You ain't trying to stick it to people. That's not because at some point you got to realize you don't be successful to stick it to people. You have to be able to look yourself in the mirror and say, I'm successful for me and the people around me. Not to say, yeah, remember when you didn't let me graduate? Yeah, that's for you, Ms. Gomez. And then, like I say, you learn this stuff and you get older. I'm like, oh, actually, Ms. Gomez, you're not the reason I flunked Spanish. You just took the, the you, had, I, you just was teaching the class. But that was the turning point for me uh, in life, to be honest with you, because I, I didn't play anger from that night on. Really? I did not. So you're standing there watching everybody graduate, breaking your heart because you didn't. But you didn't blame yourself then. You blamed her then. How did you get through Spanish? You eventually graduated because you went to Auburn. Yeah, I went, I went to summer school. But I was, you know, that, that was traumatic, not marching. Yeah, not walking that stage. Yeah, that was traumatic. Did you think people were making fun of you? Or... Oh, well, I only thought that because they were. <laughs> <laughs> I only thought that. They were calling me the big dummy. Yeah. You know, you know, kids are cruel. And, and so, like I say, when I play, I was like trying to get them all back. Like every kid who's looking this dumb and not gonna graduate. Yeah. Uh, like so when I went to summer school, when I went to college, I was like, 
I'm gonna make all these people regret making fun of me. Uh, and it, it was a, it was a really like I say because you like say you don't you you have to grow up and mature. And like I say, I was like, no man, it wasn't Miss Gomez's fault. And I say my dad wasn't there. He wasn't there. I got to move on. Twenty three thousand points, twelve thousand rebounds, four thousand assists. I think you yeah. made your point. Uh, you know, I, it worked. <laughs> it worked out good for me. But I, man, I tell you what, Doc. You know, when you're growing up in the projects, like I got a couple thousand people in my little hometown. Man, sometimes I sit around and say, I can't believe my life. I mean, I can't. I'm so lucky and blessed. And I'm not just saying that to, to, to snuggle up to you. Like, when you were growing up in this environment, you're living in the projects, and now 55 years later, I'm like, man, I went my, I've had a pretty amazing life. I mean, it's amazing. If you hadn't gone basketball, what would you have done with your life? I don't even know, to be honest with you. And I don't want to give you no fake answer. I have zero idea. There was no plan B. Well, because I had success as a freshman. I led to SEC. I was in college for three years. I led to SEC in rebounding for three years. And one of my coaches said, you know, if you get 10 rebounds a night, and it, because right now, if you look at the NBA right now, I think there's probably only seven or eight guys averaging 10 rebounds a game. Right. He says, if you get 10 rebounds a night, son, you're going to be in the NBA. And I'm like, that's going to be my specialty. I'm going to get me at least 10 rebounds a night. My only regret about college was I was not mature enough to lose weight sooner. Because I played at 300 pounds in college until Moses Malone, who's probably the most influential person in my NBA career, uh, he made me lose 50. Well, well, he didn't make me. He, I asked him why I wasn't getting to play. And the true Moses uh, Malone, he said, you're fat and you're lazy. And I, <laughs> said, and I said, what? He says, you're fat and you're lazy. He said, but you're only lazy because you're fat. And he says, you can't play at 300 pounds in the NBA, Charles. You can do it in college, but you can't play because the players are too good. And ha- happenstance, me and Moses lived in the same building. And that's why I call him dad. He says, if you want to get in shape, I'll help you. He met with me before practice, every day, after practice. Uh, and so I was at that point, I was about 295, somewhere in there. He says, let's just lose 10 pounds. I got to 285. Now, I'm, you know, obviously you can work harder. And he says, let's get to 275. And now I'm starting to get to play. Then we get to 265. Now I'm starting. And then I get to 255. Now I'm really playing well. I get to 245, but I don't have any energy or strength. He says, okay, now we know what your weight is. So I played my entire career at 255. But Moses, when he got me that weight off of me, uh, my college coach was a good coach, but he didn't have that. Uh, he couldn't get the weight off me. I didn't work hard enough. I was having success. That was probably my biggest problem. But then when I got to the NBA and couldn't play, Moses got that weight off of me. How did he do it? Uh, I had to learn two words. I'm full. Uh, <laughs> we always joke around. I mean, it, number one, you have to change your diet because you can only work out for so much. Yeah. You got to change your diet. Uh, but, man, it was. He just he met with me every day before practice and after practice. Really? It was awesome. Man, that's a it, gift. That is a gift. But, you know, Doc, that that's the difference between this generation and my generation. 
my generation listened to the older players. Like they taught, they taught me how to save my money. They taught me how to dress. You tell these young kids today, they're like, yo, uh, don't be the old man. Get off my lawn trying to tell me how to spend my money. I'm about what I want to. I'm like, dude, I'm not trying to tell you. I'm trying to tell you how this movie ends. You're going to be one of those 80% of fools who are going to be like, what happened to all my money? What happened to all my money? I'm like, dude, I've seen, I've been in the NBA since 1984. I see how this movie ends. Like, I always use this analogy. One of my favorite movies is The Perfect Storm. George Clooney and Mark Wahlberg drown every time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they, like, every time I watch that movie, I'm like, they're going to make it. It's kind of like, it's kind of like <laughs> these young kids when you see them like, yo, man, you got seven cars and you got a posse and I'm reading that you're going out every night. This movie going to end badly. <laughs> you're going to drown every Yeah, you're going to drown. I see, hey, Mark Wahlberg, him and George Clooney drown. It, 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 no, they never. They didn't get saved. No. But I tell these kids, like, yo, man, I'm not trying to be a pain. Like, I bought six cars. And Moses and Doc, like, yo, man, why you got six cars? You can only drive one at a time. Yeah. And they're like, take all those cars back. I said, you can, they, for, first of all, he says, pick one. Pick one and take the rest of them back. And he, they, they sit me down. They said, Charles, it's not the fact that you can't afford six cars. It's a fact, like, all these cars cost over $100,000. $500,000 in two years, five years, seven years. It's going to be worth millions of dollars. This money you make now got to last you the rest of your life. He says, yeah, you can afford seven cars now. But when you need that money, when it's, when it's over, and that's the, the lesson I try to do. But these young kids today, man, they, you know, they, they think we're just old geezers. The first page of a book never tells the full story. And those news alerts and headlines, like the ones we get on our phones, don't even scratch the surface of what the story is really all about. Stories are like people, multi-layered and complex. It takes some digging to find the truth. But when we find it, it can change our world. We like to dig. The news on Merritt Street. Essential television. Ron White. Everybody always wants to know when somebody is at the absolute top of their profession, and you clearly, all humility aside, you have to admit you are on the short list of the best comedians on the globe. So when did you decide that's what you wanted to do? On, uh, in 1986, they built a comedy club between where I lived and where I worked called the Funny Bone Comedy Club in Arlington, Texas. And I was a, a I was a, um, a window salesman. I sold windows and doors. And a guy that I worked with, a guy named Sam Bartholomew, uh, went to the first open mic night and he came to work the next day and said, Ron, you're funnier than these guys and you should go do this. And so I wrote four minutes of rip snorting comedy and uh had to audition with nobody with the manager of the club and a couple of wait staff that were there that early and i remember i got a laugh, laugh because one of my big jokes was uh my wife said these pants make me look big and i said no nah, i'm pretty sure it's that fat ass and which has been hacked a million times but it was a really original piece of comedy 30 years ago <laughs> yeah. And uh, and I just remember one of the waitresses who was just walking by just laughed out loud. And I'm like, boom, there's a laugh right there. I got a laugh. So 
even then I only did it because I thought it would be fun. I never thought, you know, when you're from Fritch, Texas, or even Deer Park, Texas, they don't really talk a lot about the arts on career day. Yeah. They really don't. They, they, from where I was sitting and from my dad's uh, point of view, the best thing I could possibly end up being is a left-handed Healy arc pipe welder. Right. Well, I was already right-handed. So that cuts my pay in half because, yeah. you know, those guys work in teams. Right. So a right-handed that guy does one side, but it's like a left-handed boxer or pitcher, not very many of them. So if you're a left-handed Healy arc pipe welder, especially if you can do it underwater, you can make a pretty good living. Right. And uh, so that was, you know, I'm like, well, if I can get over this right-handedness and, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know. Uh, so <laughs> hold my breath. <laughs> hold my breath for a long time. I got quite a future. Yeah. And, uh, and my dad and my dad always said, you know, the best money is in construction. And, and even in Houston back then, I'd look at those skyscrapers. I go, well, what do those guys do? Yeah. <laughs> Somebody else got to be doing something besides uh, welding. Yeah. And uh, so I was a pipe fitters helper for a while. And uh, uh, and I was pretty good at that. And But I never really became a. So when was the first time you got paid for doing comedy? Did you get paid for mm-hmm. that in 86? I don't think it was 86 because that would have been September 17th, 86. So I'm just over 32 years into it now. Yeah. Uh, so it probably would have been around February or March of the next year. I got paid to do this place called Corky's in, uh, Colleen, Texas, uh, which is where, uh, Fort, Fort hood is. Oh yeah. So Corky's was, uh, really one of the funniest things I ever said, I said then, because I was setting up a joke and I mentioned that there were 40,000 men stationed at Fort hood, which there is. And this really well-dressed drunk lady hollers out, every one of them is a bad fuck. <laughs> and I said, boy, you know, it seems like after about 39,000 times, you start to go, maybe it's me. <laughs> maybe, maybe I need to read a book, you know? And, uh, so I think I made, $40 or something for that, uh, couple of days, or maybe it was more than that. Maybe it was $80 for the, maybe it was 40 a night. I don't really remember, but, Yeah, but it was still, I was, you know, I was getting paid for doing something that I consider to be just fun. What I would do, and this is brilliant. And, and I know you'll agree is I would invent stage time. So I would go to a restaurant and say, you guys should have a comedy competition here. And first prize is dinner for two. Then I would only tell comics that I knew I was funnier than because I needed that dinner for two. Yeah. So I, I wanted to win. So I wouldn't invite anybody that was any good. It was all be really crummy comics and me who was a little less crummier than those guys are just to get a, just to get a meal. But I kind of understood early on that, that the key to stage time was being a good host. Really didn't matter how funny you are because the other two guys are going to take care of that. And I could be as funny as I w- could be, but they really liked it. If you were slick and made it look like show business, if you memorized the announcements, if you knew everybody's name, if you knew what was coming up and you didn't have to think that what you were saying as a comic was all that important, but if you made it look like it was a, you know, show business, like a professional, like show. a professional show, then they had a tendency to rehire you f- for that reason. So what I'd concentrated on early was just being a really good host for those other two guys, uh, as well as doing my little 10 minutes or 15 yeah. minutes or whatever I was up to at the time. So there were four clubs in Dallas at the time. There was a funny bone in Arlington, which is where I started. There was one in Fort worth. Uh, and then there was an imp- two improvs in Dallas. So early, early on, I was working every week, uh, six nights a week, nine shows. 
uh, as an opening act. So I had a pretty unlimited amount of stage time. And then open mic night I would do on the other night. So how much money were you making then? So you're doing six nights a week. Yeah, $200 extra a week. 200 a week yeah. for doing nine shows? Yeah, it's not a windfall. <laughs> it's not a windfall, but the, but the thing is, I loved it. How many times have you been married now? Oh, come on, Doc. <laughs> there, I don't know. If you count that tall girl, Jennifer, Donna, I don't remember her name, but uh, somebody. There was somebody. Uh, just, I've only been married twice actually married i was actually married right i was i was married to uh my son's mother who's still a dear dear friend of mine yeah uh, i was married to her for 12 years and she had my child and when we got a divorce she got a dryer we had a washer and a dryer you got the washer i got the washer she got a dryer and uh and so the next woman i was married to her for three and a half years no kids, and she got four and a quarter million in cash and whatever she could steal. Is she the one that took the gazebo? How do you even know about that? I, well, I know about it because I was with you when they oh. called you and told oh. you she took the gazebo. Oh, that's right. That's right. How, who, how do you take a gazebo? Oh, so it, this thing is set in two feet of concrete. She hired a cherry picker. To go over the top of my 12,000 square foot house, yank this thing out of the ground, and then she bought a house right around the corner just to irritate me. And then she had this cherry picker bouncing down the road with his gazebo and just plopped it down in her backyard. And they still talk about it at the River Club all the time. It's the funniest thing anybody had ever seen. That she came and just stole this thing out of it. Now, it was illegal. Uh, as it could be, I got the house, but she stole the gazebo and just planted it in her backyard. Took the foundation with it. Yeah. The, the, yeah. The concrete, apparently this cherry picker was strong enough to yank the concrete out of the ground and just take it over. They dug some holes, plumped it right back down. And she had this, the gazebo. And I ended up just calling the company that did that and said, well, just make me another one. Cause I'm not going back to court. You know, the, no, cause we were on the front nine. At Bel Air, when they called you and told you she took your gazebo, I don't think I've ever seen you speechless. Right? <laughs> no, I'm rarely took speechless. My gazebo? My gazebo? What How do you even, even want take with a it? Gazebo? I didn't even realize it was gone at first. It wasn't even a big, I mean, it was a regular, just a four post thing that was custom made. There were actually two of them. I'm glad you didn't get them both. Uh, I just had another one made and, yeah, well, and uh, just like it. And that's what matters to me. You know, your road manager for so long was Steve. Yeah. And I know you still miss him. And I got to know him well. I knew him right up till the end. Right. In fact, I knew him right up till the end because I had been to see him. and Right. You came to the hospital. and Spent some time with him and yeah. and all. Do you think he had any regrets? We met when we were six years old. When we were six years old, our houses were right next to each other. My bedroom was right across from his bedroom. So we stayed up till all hours of the morning talking out the window. Um, 
for the last 10 years of his life or 11 years of his life, he was my road manager. So we spent, and then, and we were literally, that's when we were doing 145 cities. We were together every day. He did everything for me. Uh, he had no ulterior motive other than to make my life better. And I had no ulterior motive than to make his life better. So we got to play some badass golf courses, uh, and, uh, and see things and tour and, and become friends that were completely inseparable. Uh, and I lost him young, lost him young. Well, I don't know if I ever told you in detail, but you know, I did go see him some toward the end and you know, when that comes back, it comes back with a vengeance. You know, he had, for people that don't know, he had a very aggressive form of cancer. And, you know, he could go into remission. When it comes back, he comes back with a vengeance. It's a juggernaut. There's no stopping it. And he knew that. Yeah. And he knew it before he started losing his faculties about it. His mother died of the same thing, brain yeah. cancer. Yeah, and he knew. You know, I asked him kind of the same question. If he if he had any regrets or if he had done anything different. You know, he said the last 10 years or so of my life, he said, Ron has taken me on the ride of a lifetime. He said, who gets to do this? Who gets to do this? He said, this is going to end soon. I know it. If I had known 10 years ago this was going to end now, I wouldn't have changed a day of what we've done. That's a pretty good testament. Yeah. That's a pretty good testament. Yeah, he was, he was amazing. So when you say you're a good friend, that's a pretty good test for a guy that's on his deathbed saying, I spent the last 10 years with Ron White. And if I'd have known 10 years ago, it was my last 10 years, I would have spent every day of it with him. Dr. Phil here. Come February 27th, you're going to be able to pick up a book called We've Got Issues. And you know we do. This is a book that says it's going to teach you how to stand strong for America's soul and sanity. And in this book, I set forth 10 principles for saving this society from going off the deep end. Ten principles for protecting your family. Ten principles for giving you what you need to flourish and have the life that you want for yourself and for your children and for your grandchildren. We've taken some wrong turns. We've been letting the loudest voices dictate some of the thinking that has taken us way off course. Well, I'm speaking up and bringing us back to the center of the road. I hope you'll pick this book up and I hope you'll read it with a real open mind because I'm pushing back against a lot of what you've been hearing. Somebody had to do it. Might as well be me. February 27th, we've got issues. Kathy Bates, I guess they probably have already told you, you are my absolute number one Actress in the entire world. No, they didn't tell me no, they didn't that. Tell you I that? hope you got that on film. No, because <laughs> I want to play that back. Now, six years ago, 
was when you got diagnosed, right? Uh, yes. And did this come out of the blue for you? Sometimes I feel like life is a poem and God's the one that's writing it. Um, I had been in France. Uh, my show, Harry's Law, had gotten canceled, and it was a real sock in the gut. And um, I went to France to visit with a friend of mine, and um, we went to the south. And it was so interesting looking back because when we were driving, I had both feet pressed against the, the floorboard. It was like my body was telling me, stop, don't go, turn around, go back. This is wrong, wrong direction, wrong really? direction. And I stayed there a few days, and then I promised to go to Sloan Kettering for a breast um, uh, event, and they wanted me to speak there. Then I remember my speech was about surviving ovarian cancer and, and being feeling so great and it, how it's so great when you have cancer and this happens. That. And then the next day I went home, and I had a – an MRI because I was feeling a little weird. And then when I got home, my doctor was calling me and he said, you know, you have a tumor. And I said, make it a double because breast cancer runs like a river in my family. And, um, so went through it. It was harder than going through the ovarian. Really? Yeah. For a lot of reasons. Uh, my mother had had a radical. I had seen her arm swell badly. And back in the 70s, I didn't know what that was. I just knew that it changed her life mm -hmm. completely and broke her spirit. How old was she? She was in her 70s, I think. So she got maybe 76. And cause she was born in 1907. So that would have been pretty late for her. Mm -hmm. And I also had been dating a man who had lymphedema in his arm, his left arm. And it was not a good relationship. And I had just gotten out of it. And I was terrified of getting lymphedema in my arm. I thought, what a souvenir to have from this guy that I would like to forget yeah. I ever met. So for that reason, I think I was really freaked out. And I remember telling the, the doctor, if the sentinel node is clear, get out, get out, get out. And of course, he's got to save me from cancer. You know, right. I wouldn't be here if he hadn't done what he did. Right. So, but sure enough, um, he took 19 lymph nodes from my left armpit and three from my right. And when I found out about it, I just, you think American Horror Story is scary? <laughs> you should have been in that room with me. Yeah. I just went berserk. What and, did you think at that point? Well, I felt betrayed. I felt like nobody, I mean, my niece was in the room. My best friend was in the room. I was screaming, yelling. Um, and then I heard this little um, social worker say, she was over here and I was, and she said, now just take a breath, take two deep breaths. And I was just like, I looked at her like, get the fuck out of here, lady. And I just left because I thought none of these people understand what this is, what it means to me you know, why this is so devastating. And I was really angry for a long time. And one of my surgeons found a doctor named Emily Eicher who works and treats people with lymphedema in Santa Monica. So I started to go and see her. And it was only till then that I started to let all of the anger and the rage and the upset go and work with her in terms of getting the swelling down in my arms and uh, moving on with my life. And how bad was the swelling? It was bad at first. I could only wear men's shirts. So that was another memory of, you know, the devil. Um, and um, so that was hard for me. Um, 
the the experience of going through it. I have to tell you this story, though. I think you'll like this. The pivotal moment that changed my life. I had had, you know, they give you, they put these grenades in to take the fluid out and all this stuff. And it was the first day I was free of all of that. Free of the grenades, my medication I was going down on. The sun was out. I had just gotten some new furniture for my patio. So I thought, I'm going to go out there, these big glass doors. And I was just looking out, feeling so relieved, and wham, this little finch flew right into the glass and fell on the pavement dead. And I'm thinking, great, it's always something. And so I went out there, and I picked him up, and his head was hanging off my hand, and I just thought, I'm going to go over here and sit down with him. And it's at those moments that you begin those little thoughts of hubris, you know, and I started thinking, oh, I wish I had the power to heal this little bird. And then I think, no, no, don't go there. That's not right, you know, and I just ended up praying and said, let your will be done, you know. And shortly after that, he just turned over and in my hand. I could feel his little tiny claws, and I could see his beak and his little eyes that had been all, you know, scrunched up, the little ribbony parts were fine. And I just gently tested each wing, and it was fine. And... I just didn't believe it. And my niece, Linda, she's just this Francis of Assisi in our family. So she came over there and she looked at him. She said, oh, he needs some water. So she went and got those little Dixie cup and, you know, tore off the top of it and put some water. And we put him in this planter underneath these leaves and let him drink. He drank. He was thirsty. Linda left. She said, leave him alone. Don't go over there and mess with him. I said, okay. So... But after a while, I just couldn't take it. I I did leave him for a while. And then I went out and I started to just reach for him and he flew away. And I called Linda and I said, oh, my God, he flew away. And she said, are you getting the message? And I said, no, thinking I can heal people. (laughs) I I said, I didn't want to say that. New job. (laughs) It's like, um, and I said, no, I'm not getting the message. And she said, you you thought you were dead, but you're alive. You've been given a second chance. To me, putting aside all the jokes about hubris or whatever, that was a God moment. That was a moment of grace. Yeah. And no it, doubt. it just it just my soul flipped. And since then I just I just feel like it's been such a gift. How could you not? How could you not? Not long after that, my friend Jessica Lang got me an interview with Ryan Murphy, and and off I went. We were off and running. And how do you feel now? Well, um, I fought with being an actor in this business because it's so self-aggrandizing. And I fall into the trap. I get into the ego and all that other stuff, and I try not to, but I do. You know, I was very angry when I... When I developed lymphedema shortly after um, having a mastectomy. Mm -hmm. But if that hadn't happened, then I wouldn't be in a position to have helped people 
in this way. Now I'm having a hard time taking the business seriously because of, of, of interacting with peer, people like the gentleman I met in Washington who lost three children below the age of five to pulmonary lymphedema. Mm-hmm. You're using your life to bring that to awareness. And it's saving lives because people that recognize that and attend to it, early intervention is critical. And getting money for research and moving forward in this is critical. It's just a profound impact. Yeah, well, I feel grateful, too, to have that opportunity. Uh, we, we lobbied in Congress last spring, and to, it's gone from me to being the numbers, 10 million, uh, to reading the emails and the stories and mm-hmm. the people, to actually meeting the people themselves. So it's gotten very personal over that process. When I was in Washington and I met some of these people, um, first of all, I, they are tremendously courageous. There was a woman who spoke who had to give up being an actress. Um, and the gentleman I told you about. And I, at one point, I just went up to my hotel room just and had a good old cry. And it's the people. I just have to say this. You know, there are two people that I was very moved by, a young dancer Pearl Ann Hines, and she got it in her leg. She has a particular kind of lymphedema that strikes when you're in your 20s. And it's, um, they consider it the primary, the congenital type. And for some reason, it doesn't surface until about that age. And I think it's so cruel because then it's, you're at the very beginning of your life and your dreams, and suddenly your life is 180 degrees different. So she went through a real traumatic period, and then she decided, and this is what she said. She said, if I continued to deny reality, then the legs of future generations would be lost. Can you imagine? Can you imagine coming through that, having that eloquence, having that? I mean, to me, that's God. Lyle Lovett. He is a singer, songwriter, actor, producer. You all know who he is. You're down in Texas, right? You're still living down in Klein or nearby? Yes, sir. Right right in in what was always called the Klein community, which is now, I I joke that I grew up in the country and now I live in the city, but I haven't moved. How does that work? (laughs) Well, Houston, Houston has grown out to us, you know. Yeah, it has. What used to be a rural German farming community uh, is now the the suburbs of Houston. Now, you've got some real roots down there because you didn't just happen on to Klein. In fact, Klein is named after, is it your great-grandfather? Well, my mother w- was a Klein, and so uh, that's that's my maternal family. Okay. And and my grandfather's grandfather, my great-great-grandfather, was the first Klein to, to come here. He left Stuttgart in Germany in 1848, uh, and and as so many people did in those days, and he he arrived here uh, in 1850, 1851, depending on who you who you ask. And and uh, he he the story goes would go into Houston and pick up mail for folks, and they'd come over to his his place to pick up their mail. And so they started referring to the area as Klein. It's still an unincorporated part of North Harris County. Uh, so, so it's it's not a city, but it was always called the Klein community. And thanks to the school district taking on the name Klein, 
uh, the, you know, our family name will, will continue in the area. Yeah. So you're truly a country boy and you live in an area that's named after your family. So that's some roots, man. I'm telling you. Well, I, I tell you, I grew up around my extended family. My, my mom was, a was one of seven children and my grandfather was a vegetable farmer his whole life. And, and, uh, his, his sons carried on the farm uh, in different ways. Uh, my two uncles turned it into a dairy. And one of my other uncles was a, uh, a produce dealer and helped help the local farmers get their produce to the old, uh, farmer's market, uh, uh, on airline drive. So I grew up in a farming, farming atmosphere and, and part-time work was easy to come by because there's always plenty to do. I, I was a helper in the dairy barn several summers growing up. And that's, I tell you that, that, that makes you appreciate doing something for a living, like, you know, just making stuff up and playing and singing. <laughs> yeah. You didn't get serious about music until you were in your twenties, right? Well, it was uh, for as long as I played guitar, I should play much better than I do. I, my, my second grade teacher uh, was married to a, a, a gentleman that had been in the, that was in the music store business uh, forever from one of the old families out in our area. His name was Charles Wenchy, W-U-E-N-S-C-H-E. And, and uh, I came home from school one day and my mom said, what would you think about taking guitar lessons? Mr. Winchy teaches guitar lessons. And I said, well, that'd be fun. And that was about it. I mean, there was no, no forethought. I, I, so I, they bought me a little starter guitar and Mr. Winchy ta taught me a few chords. And then he stopped giving, giving lessons. And, and my mom set me up with a, with a, a music teacher in downtown Houston, close to where she worked. My, my parents both worked for the old Umble Company, met working for the old Umble Company, which became Exxon. Right. And, and uh, they were, my mom was there for 40 years, my dad for 37. But, uh, but once a week, she would drive, she'd, she'd get off work at, at 4.45, fight the traffic all the way out. We're 28 miles north, northwest of downtown. She'd fight the right. traffic, pick me up, take me back in for a seven or eight o'clock in the evening music lesson while my dad worked late on those nights and uh, I'd have my guitar lesson. And then we'd all three go home and stop off at our favorite Mexican food restaurant. Every it was uh, the lessons were on Monday nights for years at first and then Thursday nights after that. And, and so that was something that was something we always did too. One of the things about my, my parents both working in the same place and, and, and because of the, com the commute in those days in Houston, was about the same as it is now with, with fewer people, but you know, the, the roads were much smaller and not as many. Uh, my parents rode to work and back home from work together every day. And so that could oh, be wow. up to an hour and a half each way. So they, uh, they, even though they didn't work together at the, at the office, they spent lots of time together every day. And that's, that's something I think back on as, as a, what would be a lovely part of a relationship and, oh, and we, we just always did things together you know yeah that's great to spend that time together that's great now when you started playing did you know it was a passion right away i i didn't know i i enjoyed it i enjoyed it and and uh nobody at my little i my the little lutheran school i went to trinity lutheran uh there were and there were 10 of us in my first grade class, and we grew to a, a class of 12 by the time I was in the eighth, eighth grade. In my first grade class, there were two girls and eight boys. One, one of the girls was my first cousin, uh, and, and Wanda is her name. And, and uh, the, other, the other girl's last name was Klein, but was no relation. But so even, even that sort of made, made the idea of you know, dating 
impossible. Yeah. Somebody that might be related. So, so uh, it, it was a very small school. No, nobody else even had a guitar. So I, I, I felt sort of, uh, you know, uh, singled out just because I had a guitar, and right. and we get to play occasionally in school. Uh, nothing complicated, but but uh, I would I would be asked to play occasionally for school functions, and that was a a big boost to me in those days. Well, it's so interesting that it really you got traction in the seventies and along the way picked up degrees in journalism and German. So it wasn't like you were laying around uh, watching the grass grow. What was it that finally triggered you to start writing and actually making this a career choice instead of journalism or something else? Why this? The, the, uh, you know, it was, I knew by the time I was in school and, and playing out, I, I got my first, paid gigs when I was 18 in the summer of 76 with a high school buddy of mine, Bruce Lyon is his name. And, and uh, Bruce was, was a motocrosser as well. So we had lots in common and, and he had his, he's a year older than I, and he would, he, he got his driver's license a year before I did. And so he and I would go into Houston to H and H music in those days and, and uh, take, take guitar lessons. Uh, we, we worked up some songs in the summer of, of 1976 and got a couple of local gigs and restaurants, a, a place called the Mariner on FM 1960, because mm -hmm. their regular bar, bar singer, guitar player, uh, entertainment wanted a couple of nights off that summer to, to spend more time with his, with his children. So we played on Tuesdays and Saturdays and I, I just loved it. I just loved doing it. And when I went back to school, I just kept trying to play. Uh, it, so it, it was then that I, I realized how much I enjoyed doing it. I never thought that was a realistic thing to aspire to, to be able to do it for a living. I mean, we made, we made $50 a night at the Mariner and that was, that was huge. You know, my, my parents sent me to school, so I didn't have to worry about paying for my tuition or my rent. Uh, and, uh, any money that I made playing, I could save up and put back into buying new equipment or saving right. up for a new guitar and, you know, making my sound system better. So I, I did just that and just kept, kept playing, uh, after that everywhere I could. You asked me earlier how I came to want to write songs, and it was—it uh, really was a feeling of not being able to play someone else's song adequately. I—I I, I thought to myself, you know, I need to make up my own songs. If—if—if if, if there's going to be a reason people want to listen to me, it, it has to be not for my voice necessarily, or my, or the way I play guitar but for my point of view. So I, I started making up songs really to, to just to, to show my take on things. And, and I, I felt like that was the strongest thing I had to offer. And you do have a unique point of view. You've said people don't want to hear how well things are going. So you kind of write about, you know, pain, conflict, whatever. What led you down that path? Because you do write about, as someone trained in psychology, you cut to the chase about relationships and life and things like that in your songs. And I think that's what people relate to so much. I was just curious how you landed on that particular way of writing songs, that particular point of view. Well, that's, that, <laughs> you have to be careful what you say in interviews over the years, don't you? That they, they, it really, my, my approach to songwriting isn't really an, an approach. I mean, it's, I, I feel lucky to, to make up anything that holds together from the, from the first line to the last line and, and sounds halfway decent. Uh, it, it, I, you know, I really, uh, in, in, in writing a song, I, 
I rarely think about uh, the audience or who the song might reach. I, it really is is a it's really just sort of self therapy uh, writing writing a song. So so I've I've always felt free enough free 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 in the sense that if you write something you really don't like nobody ever has to hear it that's that's one thing right. you can absolutely absolutely guarantee but i've i've felt free enough to to write about things that i've actually gone through and to to write about you know write write from from real life experiences not not necessarily trying to create experiences and some 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 songs start have more truth in them than others some songs start off with a kernel of truth and spin into some fantastical story but but uh, some of my songs are 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 you know not so much written as they are just written down from from things that have happened yeah do you know when you've written something that is going to be a hit can you tell does it feel right to you can you tell one from another thank you for saying the word hit but you know i've i in in a way you know i've 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 never had a hit and and uh, and that's uh, I've had some songs that have made it on the charts and and uh, and I have a few songs that people seem to ask for every time I play. Uh, but what's important to me is just to have a song that feels good to me the first time I play it in front of people. I'm, I'm not looking for necessarily how the audience reacts, but I'm I'm looking for how how the, if I feel self-conscious playing a song in front of you. Then, then I have to reevaluate that song. But, but if I feel confident playing a song in front of you, then I, then I feel pretty solid about it. Right. Well, you're very humble the way you describe all of that. But, you know, you've got four Grammys, seventeen nominations. You've been on the country charts. You've been on the Billboard charts. I mean, you've had a lot of hits, uh, a lot yeah. of songs that have done. Just look back decade after decade, you just seem to keep turning up. And on both charts, and you'd gravitate away from country, then you'd come back and win those fans back again, and then gravitate away. Just you just do what you want to do, and people seem to find you. You know, I I have always been lucky to work with folks in the music business who who've given me a free hand creatively, and and supported sort of uh, you know how I wanted to, to the kinds of songs I wanted to record, and and that's that's. That's unusual, really, and and part of it is, and I, and I appreciate you're saying that. I'm so grateful for the career I've had, but but if you're, you know, if you have, if you have a big hit, for example, you know, you can get, you can kind of paint yourself into a corner. Uh, people might want to hear something, that, you know, do us another version of that song and have let's have another big hit with it. You know, you you can you could be subjected to that kind of expectation or that kind of pressure. And and I've worked with folks that that uh, have have helped me to do what I want to do, and that that's uh, uh, that's a wonderful feeling. 